You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM and Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, or PHIP for short. The aim of this podcast is to show that public health is more than infectious diseases and health guidelines. Throughout the series, we'll get to know some of the people behind public health. In each episode, we invite a public health professional to share their career journey and experiences. Stay tuned to the end of each episode as we also include a segment on some of the best places in Kingston to promote a greater sense of community. My name is Tiffany Harianto, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at Queen's University. I graduated from the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program at McMaster University, where my honors project included making research on music and mental resilience more accessible to the public. As someone with a musical background, it's important to me to raise awareness on how we can apply our interests and passions to promote health for everyone. I'm also the program intern of the Beyond Words program at Union Gallery, which provides a safe space for students and members of the Cataraqui Kingston community to use art and conversation to promote wellness. I'm excited to co-host the podcast Annapolis Day. Through this podcast, I hope listeners will gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of public health. And I am Peyton Bailey. Like Tiffany, I am a student of Queen's University's Master of Public Health program. I have an academic background in physiology and microbiology, while personal interests include infection prevention, youth engagement in public policy, and the use of mass media to facilitate health education. I am delighted to work alongside Tiffany on this podcast and to learn more about the diverse areas of study and implications under the realm of public health science. I consider this podcast an opportunity for listeners of all backgrounds to gain a new perspective of health and how it intersects with various aspects of our society. This is Episode 6, Infection Control in a Changed World. This week, we learn what compels someone to pursue a career in IPAC, that is, infection prevention and control. We will also investigate some of the challenges involved in achieving infection control as highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Lastly, we will discuss the changing role of infection control practitioners and current educational initiatives in this profession. Joining us to share her story and expertise on these topics is Heather Candon. Heather possesses an extensive academic background, having received a Master of Science in Microbiology and Immunology from the University of British Columbia, and a Master of Health Management from McMaster University. Additionally, in 2011, she achieved a certification in infection control. Heather is also an appointed member of the editorial board of a Canadian Journal of Infection Control and has experience in quality, patient safety, and risk. She is now Director of Infection Control at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and serves as an adjunct lecturer at Queen's University, spearheading the new MPH IPAC specialization. So, Heather, how would you describe your career journey? I, it was an interesting, it, it's an interesting journey. It started out, actually, I've always had um, an affinity for biology in particular. Um, and so I started in my undergrad in biology. And from there, I was introduced to microbiology in, in particular um, by a wonderful professor that I had at the University of Waterloo. 
um, who actually had a very, um, ap- he, he actually worked in industry, which really opened my eyes to like the, you know, how, how I could use microbiology in future, how it might ap- apply to my career aspirations. Um, so from there, I actually went to UBC and did my master's uh, in microbiology and immunology, particularly focusing on pathogenesis. And so through that process, um, I was actually considering doing my PhD, and at which point I thought, you know, if I do my PhD, some to some degree, it, it would very much, I could always work in industry with a PhD, um, but it, it focuses you to some degree on, a, on an academic pathway as well, right? So so with that, I got thinking, do I really want to work in a laboratory um, for the rest of my life? Um, and I had to do a lot of self-reflection, and with that, I realized I don't think I do. And, and what sort of skill sets and, and what sort of knowledge base do I have that I can use to work with people? And so I started doing um, a lot of research and in, in what I could do with a background in microbiology. And it just so happened that University of British Columbia offered a certificate um, in infection control, which has been offered for years. And so I ended up um, actually taking that certificate and from there sort of never looked back. Um, I, I went ahead and actually worked at McMaster University and dabbled in epidemiology as well, which gave me some like a really incredible skill set to apply to infection control. So simultaneously, I was finishing my infection control certificate, getting my background in epidemiology. And from there, I started applying for jobs, actually, and, and landed uh First, I, I, my, my first experience into infection control was actually through, um, uh, through long-term care and complex continuing care. Um, and, and so from there, I've kind of never looked back and just moved around to different sectors from there between acute care and government. So, yeah. That's perfect. And you've brought up the topics of epidemiology and microbiology. And I'm just curious, in your own words, could you describe how those topics as well as others apply to infection control and prevention? For sure. That's a great question. So, you know, we learned a lot. So during, actually during my undergrad is when the first SARS-CoV um, outbreak occurred and there were several cases in Toronto and, and mortality associated with those cases as well. Healthcare workers had been infected. Um, some healthcare workers had actually passed as well. Um, so that really, that was uh, quite intriguing for me at the time, just, you know, how I can apply microbiology um, and through that context. Um, it's interesting because infection control practitioners and what we learned from SARS-CoV, the, the original one, not SARS-CoV-2 that we're dealing with the worldwide pandemic right now, what we learned is actually infection control practitioners were t- traditionally nurses. And so nurses do not have um, backgrounds necessarily in microbiology. They learned it on the job, but they didn't have different skill sets that someone with potentially epidemiology, laboratory-based skills, um, and different experiences um, and knowledge set, right? So from from that SARS experience originally, there was actually um, follow-up recommendations made that infection control practitioners should come from a variety of backgrounds. Um, and so that really gave me the ability to sort of move into the field. Um, prior to that, all infection control teams were nurses. And now, um, you know, with that recommendation coming out, um, it, it really opened the door for me because I had microbiology and epidemiology. It was at the beginning of my career, that was, um, it was a fight to, to get people to be open um, and even get an interview. It was a challenge to really sort of prove myself. And and there were several of us in the field that sort of entered around that same time that came with similar backgrounds as myself that were not sort of your traditional sort of nursing or even medical lab technologist backgrounds. 
the skill sets of, you know, understanding epidemiology and microbiology are really helpful in the field of infection control. Traditionally, infection control was very, very much managed from sort of the patient level. Um, and um, that's why it was heavily sort of involved with nursing staff. And, and what we sort of realize is these other skills of actually being able to track um, disease incidence, prevalence, being able to apply sort of mathematical modeling even to um, how diseases are spreading, um, contagious diseases in particular, it is a skill set um, that, that you utilize every single day in infection control. And so understanding sort of what are the baseline levels of infection we should be seeing based on facility based on, you know, locally, based provincially, or, or nationally, right? So there is, um, there's certain expertise that you can bring um, that, that you really need to hone as an infection control practitioner around epidemiology. And then with related to microbiology, really understanding um, sort of what tests are, you know, need to be collected, understanding transmission pathways as it relates to, to microbiology, and how those tests can be interpreted as well is really important. So interpreting, interpreting lab results. Um, so there's a variety of sort of things and backgrounds that people come from, you know, and, and enter into infection control, but epi and micro are two sort of skill sets that are really important and have been highlighted, particularly through this next pandemic, right? SARS-CoV-2. Thank you for explaining the connection. It reminded me a lot about our program planning and evaluation class as well, where we discussed the importance of looking at baseline rates in order to understand when an outbreak is occurring. So Heather, could you share a bit about your experience in terms of program or policy planning and evaluation? Sure. So it's a, that's a great question. So we use in infection control, um, you know, there's standardized um procedures. There's standardized case definitions. Um, and we, we apply those in our policies day to day uh, within any infection control team across Canada or really the world. There are pretty clear standard definitions and we work closely with public health on those. So day to day, we monitor for infectious diseases and we know what our baseline rates are, right? Like we understand what we see. We track and trend information and data um, when we see things getting out of control um, or, you know, even just one organism that is, you know, unexpected can cause a particular sort of shift and management and making sure that you put certain control measures in place. It's really exciting to hear more about what you do on a day-to-day basis as well. So what does your typical workday look like? It's a good question. So, you know, I've moved into administration now. So, you know, my day day to day looks very different when I'm in a management or leadership type position versus what it did when I was an infection control practitioner or professional in the front line. Um, So when I worked um, as an infection control practitioner, uh, you know, a typical day, depending on what your portfolio is and what you're covering, and you're actually working, let's say, in a hospital, your day would be involved in, you know, I would, if I covered an emergency department, for instance, I'd have to come in extra early and make sure that I'm going in and assessing all the patients. So what that requires is, you know, looking in, you know, your um, electronic medical record and actually reviewing patients one by one to see if they require precautions, can they come off precautions. And then from there, it's actually making sure that that information is relayed to the people that need it. Um, So talking to those in the front line, if there's any changes in the patient condition and whether they can come off precautions and sort of does does that change the trajectory of their care. Now they can be quickly placed in a unit. Um, Working with bed flow, who makes sure that patients flow through the system appropriately, like in a hospital 
hospital setting and doing those assessments. So that's kind of what the, how the day starts. From there, um, you can get pulled into all sorts of things. And that is the beauty of infection control, actually. So oftentimes there'll be baseline things that an infection control program you'd want to make sure that you're covering off over, say, a quarter or, you know, every year. And that might be ensuring you're doing um, hand hygiene education or routine practices education. But there's stuff in your day to day that you also need to do. And one of those things is actually auditing. So and, and infection control practitioners need to get out from behind their desks because a lot of, um, you know, patient assessments are actually done electronically now. Uh, a lot of hospitals and sites have electronic medical records. So you do that on your desk, right? But there's, there is a really important component of the work day to day where you get up and you round. So you go to the units, you round, um, you talk to the frontline staff, you get an understanding of what's occurring um, and that, you know, the appropriate signage is up. Um, from there, you would do your auditing potentially on some sort of frequency. There might be ad hoc in-services that you do with the frontline staff. If there is a particular issue on a unit, there's, um, you know, a patient has been admitted that you're not clear, the staff are not clear on how to manage that particular um, pathogen, um, you would puddle, you would bring the staff together and provide an in-service on how to safely manage that patient and give details on, you know, personal protective equipment um, and timelines as to when the patient could come off precautions. So that that's kind of the day in a nutshell. I mean, there's, there's the things that need to be completed as part of the program as I said, sort of quarterly or throughout the year. And then there's the one-off emergencies, right? There's the crisis management. So, you know, we have situations where we do have outbreaks. And so there's an immediate response that's required and the infection control team actually coordinates that response. We're not responsible for running the whole show. We tr we bring people together in what's called an outbreak management team. And from there, we, we have literally a crisis response uh, and make sure we have all the right control measures, the right people at the table, communication is happening and it's quite coordinated. Another piece of sort of the day-to-day, -day, I mean, outbreaks happen more frequently than, you know, I'd like to admit, but they do. They do happen. And if you have a robust surveillance program in your organization, you will detect outbreaks a lot sooner as well. Um, so it's not a bad thing. It means you're detecting things, right? Um, but other things that can crop up are just one-off random sort of um, diseases or, you know, pathogens or infections that occur in patients that you're not familiar um, with seeing or can be considered high consequence pathogens. So things like Ebola. So there's that whole level of preparedness and making sure the organization is prepared to, to sort of manage um, these types of events. If it's okay with you, Heather, I'd like to take a step back now mm -hmm. to when you first broke into the infection prevention field and just ask your career really started out in microbiology mm -hmm. and that's very different that's a very different career path than most people in infection control take which is tends to be nursing so I'm, I'm curious what obstacles or advantages have you experienced because you had that microbiology background that's interesting. So there's actually a position statement now from IPAC Canada. Um, this has been a bit of a contentious subject um, around nursing, you know, sort of owning the field of infection control. There's been a huge shift in that. Um, and there is a position statement from IPAC Canada clearly sort of articulating the variety of backgrounds that IPAC teams or IPAC individuals can and should come from. And the need for robust IPAC teams and having uh, a variety of individuals represented on those teams because it really does bring a certain level of, of depth to a team when you have different expertise at the table. Um, there was, I mean, there has been challenges and there still continues to be challenges around sort of particularly outside of urban areas, I would say, and actually in provinces. 
um, you know, in BC in particular, the nurses union actually owns the position for infection control professionals. So there's this dichotomy between sort of what we're hearing from a federal sort of perspective and then our national professional organization about what we should understand and sort of look to um, certain professionals to move into the field, but yet it's not supported potentially at a national level. So, you know, what does this mean for the future? I think, you know, continued support through our IPAC Canada, which is our professional organization, continue to see academic pathways like the Queen's IPAC stream as part of the MPH program. I think that's we're going to see a, a big shift in the future, particularly on the heels of and sort of as we continue to push through the current pandemic that we're in, I think we are going to see a a massive shift actually in how we we bring people into the field um, and and hopefully look for a federal alignment like across like nationally uh, on who are acceptable individuals to move into this profession. We're moving towards this profession becoming, you know, a recognized allied health profession Perhaps there might be regulation in our future, right? Perhaps having a college. Um, I'm not sure sort of what that might entail, but, uh, you know, with um, what we do day to day, uh, the position has really solidified itself within the allied health team and within, you know, various organizations um, that offer different levels of care between long-term care, chronic, um, you know, complex continuing care, I should say acute care we're you know within public health teams um and we're even sort of pushing out into sort of other areas as well that we weren't traditionally in so you've really discussed a lot about the interdisciplinary nature of ipac and it seems as though there's been a, a bit of a shift from maybe more specialized um, individuals from a nursing background getting involved in ipac and now these these large teams of people at least where it's it's permissible um, being able to provide all of their background knowledge to to successfully implement some IPAC initiatives. But it seems as though you're also mentioning that maybe in some communities where there isn't a large hospital, we need to have more IPAC professionals who have themselves a more interdisciplinary background. And, and that's things like the Queen's Dream. Um, that, that's what things like the Queen's Dream is trying to achieve, mm-hmm. I, I would say. Absolutely. So this is where, so ultimately, for years, I started out, as I said, I have this cobbled together background to build the skills and competencies to be an infection control practitioner in the field, epidemiology, microbiology, I took leadership courses, I've taken quality, I've taken patient safety, I've, I've actually done a deep dive on risk and taken certifications in that. So all of these sort of culminate in what is considered competencies for IPAC practitioners. And I've had to go and actually pull on different streams and different certificates, different, you know, um, traditional academic streams like master's programs to build these competencies to really become, um, you know, specialized in the field. People can do this, you know, on the job. But ultimately, what I wanted to do um, was one day, it was always sort of my vision to actually see an academic pathway that brought all these competencies together into one program. And so this sort of, this idea, it actually, I've thought of it for a long time and just wasn't really sure how to go about it. And I had an interesting opportunity while I was working at Kingston Health Sciences Center. I was doing some of the emergency preparedness planning related to the pandemic for with in collaboration with Queen's University, because we work closely, obviously, with Kingston Health Sciences. And sort of through that process um, and sitting through those meetings, I actually pulled the dean aside <laughs> um, and had a conversation with Dr. Philpot and said, 
you know, um, I would love to sort of pitch my idea on on what your thoughts would be on creating a master's program for infection control practitioners. And Dr. Philpott, I mean, she's very open-minded and, and she worked right in the trenches, you know, during COVID, right? So she was, you know, she was in long-term care. She saw sort of what, it, what happens when you don't have robust IPAC programs. So she really understood and saw the vision. And sort of from there, you know, it, it, that's how this all came about was through just a basic conversation and someone sort of believing in it and then pushing the pathway forward and really trying to find a home for this. So when we, when we looked at the the the, um, the different faculties that are available in the different programs, what we found is that a lot of the competencies that infection control practitioners need to have are identical to the master's in public health. But on top of that, there's a variety of other sort of core competencies you need to have as an infection control practitioner or professional. Um, and so that's where we developed additional courses to fill that need and create like a specialized stream. So this actually happened at lightning speed because there was a need to do this. Um, and I think, you know, Queen's really, you know, got behind it um, and supported it. And Dr. Brad Stoner uh, and Dr. Weir, Erica Weir. Um, really, really helped facilitate it and push the program forward. And we got it out in sort of record time. So, And that's awesome because both Peyton and I are part of the IPAC specialization. So we're really getting to enjoy the benefits of that as well. And I had a couple questions. So first off, what inspired you to, I guess, develop or implement the IPAC fundamentals course that you're currently teaching? So... So what I did actually early days when we were trying to find a home for this particular stream is did um, actually looked at um, course mapping and competency mapping. So looked at specific courses that are already offered through the MPH and found out sort of where what competencies or issue or, or knowledge base is lacking from the MPH that would consider you or make you a specialist in infection control. And so that's where we landed on actually developing um, three courses as it relates to the IPAC stream. So one being the foundations and infection control, which covers all the basics. Um, And the next part was really, really required sort of specialized attention in its own course, which was medical microbiology, which is is taught by um, Dr. Pramit Sheth. And then the, the next one was actually quality patient safety and risk which is a big component of infection control that we do day to day to day and is absolutely not covered in some of and in a variety of um, uh, sort of programs that people might come into infection control from. So like with, it is covered to some degree in say nursing, potentially, you know, a microbiology background, sorry, medical lab technologist background. They might touch on those topics, but a lot of people don't get into the depth that's required and what infection control does day to day. So we were able to partner with Dr. Kim Sears, who is um, providing the master's level course in quality patient safety risk. And like that level of training is so required um, for infection control uh, professionals these days. And so, so happy to see these three courses make up the entire stream. And then of course, with that is the practicum component as well. So the practicum offers a 400 hour experiential learning placement. uh, And really that is where infection control professionals are, you know, immersed into, into the field and really develop 
the skills to do assessments, interpreting lab results, and things you cannot learn from just sitting in class. So I think that's the beauty of this program. I think it would not be the same unless we actually had the practicum. The practicum, we've, we've had one cohort so far that has completed the practicum stream. And I personally, and we, had a, we actually had a student, I'm, I'm currently working at Sunnybrook, and we had a student um, through, you know, has, has completed the practicum and actually has been hired on and now working at Sunnybrook on our team. And sort of through that process, we were able to see um, what experiences you know, the students actually need and how we can fine tune it moving forward. So it's a unique opportunity to not only be involved in this program, but also accept students, you know, right into the hospital and and sort of oversee what their practicum experience entails. And I agree, that's really important too. And I also think it's fascinating that the IPAC specialization was born out of a need for emergency preparedness with the most recent COVID-19 pandemic. And especially because I myself was inspired to apply to the MPH program, partly because of COVID-19 as well. And I wanna go back to your experiences with emergency preparedness. And I remember in the module for this class, reading about the outbreak management teams and the diversity involved in that team as well. So I'm wondering, how does your microbiology background help you with outbreak management that most other professionals in IPAC might not be able to tap into? Great question. So I think, you know, with, with having a microbiology background and being able to critically appraise literature as well, so it's one of the skills that through my master's um, preparedness and completing my master's degree, not only in microimmunology, but also through health management, um, you know, I've been able to develop sort of those sets of skills. Because when you're dealing with organisms, um, you need to be able to understand how the organism spreads. It could be from patient to patient, from patient to staff, within the environment, right? There's different ways organisms get around. So having a really clear understanding of what those mechanisms are, that they can do that, helps you actually break the chain and helps you put um, the chain of infection or transmission. So it really helps you put control measures in place and understand what, what we need to do or how we need to practice in order to stop organisms spreading to other individuals. So I think that's where having a microbiology background or, or, you know, having actual focused training in medical microbiology, similar to the MPH program, um, sets those individuals apart. And I think that was the, really what drove us um, in developing the IPAC stream um, was really having that that specialized focus on, on med micro. I think that's such a key component and being able to sort of practice and apply those concepts in, in in the front line. We've talked a lot about the Queen's IPAC stream, and I'm just curious, do you think opportunities like this will become the norm? Do you see other universities kind of uh, tapping into that? So down in the States, there's an organization called the American Professionals in Infection Control. They've actually, ironically, at the same time that we've been doing this in Canada, also been utilizing the MPH and developing an MPH academic pathway across the States. Um, and so, you know, they have pushed into a variety of universities. So APIC is considered the same APIC or American Professionals in Infection Control is considered the same as our professional organization here in Canada, which is called IPAC Canada. Um, and so... We simultaneously have sort of been doing this, I mean, at a slower rate here in Canada, of course, we're an N of one at the moment with Queens being the main, you know, the only MPH program with this stream and the only master's level um, training available that I'm aware of uh, at the moment. I think ultimately that's probably what's going to happen is we're going to see a really clear sort of entry into 
ultimately that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. I want us to have a clear entry or pathway into the field um, where we see MPH you know, streams across Canada where students can sort of enter into the field that way, regardless of sort of what their background is. If As long as they meet the criteria for entering an MPH program, they can then specialize, you know, within IPAC as well from there. I do think that's going to be the future. Um, hard to say in, in, in all provinces, but I do think we'll, we'll start seeing that. And sometimes when we see how things go in the States as well, because they're just, they're a bit ahead of us as far as that and, and looking at those academic pathways and APIC is a much bigger organization than our professional um, organization here in Canada, I think we'll probably be following suit in future. That's awesome to hear. So what exactly stands out to you about IPAC in general? So what drew you into this profession? So ultimately what drew me into this profession is working with people. So I looked up, I remember, I remember actually scouring through job descriptions of infection control professionals and practitioners at the time when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do sort of after my, my master's in microbiology. Um, and I remember reading sort of what the requirements of these jobs were in the description of sort of what the day-to-day entails. And I thought, gosh, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to work with people. I don't want to, I did not want to work in a lab forever. So I did it. I got through, I did my master's, that's fine. But I knew I wanted to sort of to work with people. Um, and so, and then when, you know, when I really understood more about what the job entailed and, and did my certificate in infection control, I really was clear that I, I was all about sort of the patient safety side of things. And Tiffany, you said earlier, sort of that emergency preparedness stuff too. I thought that was just super cool, like getting into things like that and thinking about things like high consequence pathogens and like managing outbreaks. I thought that was just so next level. But, you know, um, then when you get in, get into it day to day and now like what keeps me in the field is every single day is different and we touch all facets of an organization. So we work with so many different players and departments. Like I'm just talking about acute care right now, but this goes for, you know, other areas as well. You get, you get into all sorts of, of things with infection control. And no day, you know, is the same as the other. So it's it's constantly changing. You're coming across things you'd never, you never think you'd have to be dealing with. Like just the other day I had to deal with, you know, we had a situation where um, we actually linked an ice machine to an outbreak. Or a sen- it wasn't actually an outbreak. It was actually a sentinel case, so one case. Um, but we quickly linked it back to an ice machine. So I've been consulting on ice machines. So there's all these sort of things that, you know, I, I, you told me that 10 years ago. I didn't think I'd actually be consulting on an ice machine. But here we are. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things you get into with infection control. Yeah. Funny thing about microbio is that it teaches you to be careful about the smallest things, including ice machines now. And would you be able to share your response to COVID-19 as an infection control professional? I actually started at Kingston Health Sciences Center on January 6th, and it was the exact same day that the um, there was a notification put out that there was an abnormal pneumonia coming out of Wuhan, China. And so um, immediately, and I was at the new kid on the block, it just started, right? So it was January 6th. And I said to the team, the infection control team, I'm like, what do we normally do when we get notifications like this? Like sometimes, depending on where you work, sometimes they'll push out details to emerge to say, okay, you now now just you need to start, you know, screening patients that have had travel history potentially to Wuhan, right? And so we kind of sat on it and we thought, okay, what's happening? And then we saw we saw things kind of, you know, they started building and getting people. We saw 
um, cases transported, you know, around the world. And then we had our own uh, experience with COVID uh, landed, actually, it landed at Sunnybrook, an individual who had COVID actually was seen first at Sunnybrook Hospital. Um, So in Ontario, so um, the whole preparedness, really, the entire team, and then had to kick into high gear. But with that came the responsibility of actually trying to articulate two organizations and two people at all levels of just the importance of this and like what we need to do to get prepared. Because early days, we didn't really know what we were dealing with, right? So we really did have to ramp up. Um, We did, you know, there was multiple stakeholders across the organization that came together to get the organization ready. And that included doing an organizational risk assessment of like, if we did have a singular case at that time, we were trying to figure out how we'd manage that. And then we did mock activities where we actually said, okay, we're going to manage one case. What's that look like? Okay, now we're going to manage five cases. How do we do that? Um, And then from there, it was really, um, you know, in March when in 2020, you know, things started to get really real. And like, you know, organizations, you know, healthcare institutions and organizations, like even out in the community, people really had to ramp up their preparedness efforts in general. But really, it was, uh, you know, we, we formed what's called an incident command team. Um, many, many um, organizations did this and they pulled together certain players across the organization to respond and to get things in place as quickly as possible and manage risks um, and respond appropriately. Um, and that's sort of how we managed. And infection control is just a player in that, right? Like ultimately we inform sort of what preparedness might look like, but we have a number of um, individuals across the organization and, and departments and roles who actually get prepared. So we inform that preparedness. Thank you for sharing. I just find it fascinating hearing about how different organizations and people with different roles responded during this time that changed a lot. COVID really impacted all of us in some way, but you certainly had a, a firsthand experience with uh, with the pandemic. I- I'm curious, how do you think your profession has really been changed by COVID-19? So I think a lot of, I think infection control practitioners aren't seen as frontline workers, right? Like, I mean, do I go in patient rooms? Yes. Do I talk to patients? Yes. Do I talk to their family members? Yes. Do I provide hands-on care? No, I do not. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, we worked side by side with some of the frontline workers and making sure they felt protected, making sure that we explained how to use personal protective equipment and why it was changing and why recommendations were changing and why we're now taking sort of this approach versus another. And we were really involved in doing crisis communication so it's it really has it's really thrust infection control prof- professionals into the into the light. Like we've actually had to be and and provide um, a level of sort of um, crisis management within our institutions and within our organizations to to get staff prepared and communicate tough messages. You know when there's these things called directives and provinces drop directives and and they changed at times they were literally changing on a daily basis and we had to go relay that information to the frontline staff and say okay today this is what happens and get things organized um, around you know access to personal protective equipment we were running out of supplies um, and so we you know we were having to make tough decisions on like how we were managing those things so how does it change our profession going forward i think it's it's thrust us into sort of a different we're the flavor of the month at the moment like infection control really is um we're seen as sort of I think we've always been key players, but now we're seen as leaders 
in a different way in organizations, right? It's changed the model of how we do infection control. I know infection control teams aren't going to want to hear this across Canada, but it's, we, you know, we run our teams sort of Monday to Friday on a model of like eight to four, but what's really sort of what I'm now seeing is that we are really needed on a Saturday, Sunday. So when there is crisis, these, these, the availability of the infection control team, um, it's changed the model and how the program is delivered. It's like, and having more access to IPAC even on a Saturday and Sunday, right? So um, sort of shifting away from that nine to five model and pushing into like seven days a week. That's, that's very much how we've changed and really being leaders. I mean, that's ultimately has really been highlighted through the pandemic. Communicating those new COVID policies must have been a big challenge for you because we know they did change regularly day to day. And I'm curious, Heather, what are some of the ever major challenges you experience in your profession? The challenge that I see now, like being in um, in leadership and like administration is more um, the patient safety side of things. And so, and, and ensuring um, everyone understands and sees why when we have lapses or we have patients who acquire hospital infections, why that's serious and being able to articulate why that's serious and how this has changed the trajectory of someone's care, right? So um, just making sure those are managed appropriately. And I think more and more we're seeing there's an element of risk associated with infection control that I don't think was appreciated quite as much prior to the pandemic and sort of, and the ethics around that and all these other pieces. So I think those are, that's a big challenge as well, moving forward, checking in on teams and really, you know, from the the patient safety side of things. Thank you for sharing. And it is interesting, too, that the COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on infection control professionals. And I'm wondering, has this affected how you are able to overcome challenges and maintain your own well-being as well? So in a way, this is about balancing your personal and professional life, too. I think that's a great question, Tiffany. So I don't think I've, you know, myself and, you know, other other healthcare workers over the last three years, I don't think we've ever worked as hard as we have um, in history, it feels like, um, in my career anyway. Um, it's, it's made me realize, though, that, uh, you know, from just a, a work-life balance perspective, things can wait. Like, I think during the pandemic, things could not wait. We had literal directives and things happening, like, minute by minute by minute that we had to provide um, updates, whether it's to senior leadership, to the front line, to visitors or patients and families. Like, why are these, why is this information changing? What is happening Um, So it's made me reflect, um, I think, that sort of going forward, um, making sure we rely on sort of sort of others that like that also specialize in crisis communication, like our communications teams and sort of we don't have there's not the the urgency I've realized in sort of my day to day and like what I take seriously as an emergency now has actually shifted a lot as a result of COVID. So like certain things that happen, it's really shifted my mindset that like, I can deal with that tomorrow. That email will be there tomorrow. I'm not, I do not need to answer that tonight at nine o'clock at night, right? Like before, I think during the middle of COVID, some of us were working, you know, terribly long days. Um, Not to say we wouldn't have to do it again if there was another sort of high consequence pathogen or or a pandemic, but uh, probably look at it a little differently yeah thank you for sharing that we've talked about a lot of the major challenges you experience and how you achieve a work-life balance i'm curious what advice do you have for new 
people entering the profession and what they can do to prepare themselves for IPAC? For sure. I think there's so much to be learned from seasoned IPAC professionals. So particularly for those entering in the field, whether it in your practicum or your first job, is really learn, really learn you know, what an organization is about and, and sort of the different players that you should be working with or could be working with, right? And and every organization is different and it has its own culture. But I think first step is actually working with those seasoned ICPs. They come with a host of knowledge. And sometimes you learn, um, as an infection control professional, you learn things by experience because you've never sort of had to, you've never read it in a textbook and this is new and like we're dealing with this, but sort of those principles still apply. And there's a lot to be learned from sort of those seasoned infection control practitioners. So if you could really grab onto them um, and and learn um, and take squeeze whatever you can out of them and sort of what resources and tools do they turn to. And then the other side of that is getting an understanding of what some of the other players within healthcare settings do and how do you partner with them. Part of our job as infection control practitioners is actually consultation. That is what we do. We consult um, and we provide assessment of situations and provide feedback and recommendations. So it's really important that you understand who your partners are in your job day to day. So like, how do you work with physiotherapists? What does that look like? Understanding the different, you know, partners across an organization and how you can help their workflow and help. And maybe there's stuff they don't know. So like they having those conversations with them um, and then it can help inform what that relationship needs to look like. So sort of working with your own, with those seasoned infection control professionals and understanding sort of an organization, what it's about, what the different departments are, and then how do you partner and sort of collaborate with, uh, with individual departments is, is important when starting out in the field. An important theme that we've noticed throughout not only this conversation, but the podcast series as a whole is mentorship. So regarding that theme, have you had any mentors in your career who've really inspired you throughout? I have been very lucky in my career, and I've, that's why I've always felt strongly in paying it forward. So um, I can actually name, I won't, but I can actually name individuals that have given me a hand up in my career all the way along. And I think it's really important um, in infection control, particularly because, you know, I I don't come from an odd background anymore with my micro and epi. You're seeing many people join the field now with this background. But when, you know, I think um, when I see individuals trying to crack into the field and, and really trying to make it a go, make a go of it um, and keen people and passionate people and they're in it for the right reasons, like I always try to give them a hand, a hand up. Um, and, and trying to guide their career. Like ultimately, and I got into leadership uh, and working in, in management um, because ultimately I want to see infection control grow, be recognized as like, um, you know, an allied profession. And I want to bring people with me on that. And I want to make sure that I help. I, I was given a hand up by many um, individuals. And I'd like to give other people a hand up into the, and, and if they want to crack into leadership and maybe they don't want to, maybe they want to go somewhere else, but helping to guide and inform sort of where their career trajectory might go. So that was always really important for me. Um, and I'd like to pay that forward. That's awesome. So related to that, what are your hopes for students in the IPAC specialization and where they might bring their knowledge in the future? So my hope is these these cohort we've had the first cohort they right, they completed last year we had uh, three individuals graduated um, with the IPAC specialization this year we have um, seventeen students so <laughs> we've definitely increased numbers and next year who knows what we'll be at um, my my uh, my hope 
um, and dream for the students coming out of this program is that we create infection control practitioners on steroids, <laughs> that they're coming with like a different level of knowledge and understanding about what IPAC is when they land at organizations. So they know sort of what potentially, they might not know what the job is, but they have the theory, right? They've got all that theory and then they can learn sort of the practicalities during their practicum. Um, so really that is the hope and that, you know, through this master's program that will push individuals into, you know, being the next leaders in infection control and really understanding how important it is. Um, and I hope, you know, between Kim and I, who's the other co-instructor for the course that we've been able to articulate just how important it is to be involved with like IPAC Canada and sort of other initiatives and that prof professional development piece um, and making sure we're sort of highlighting the profession in general. What are some of the lesser known things about IPAC that you think people entering the profession should be aware of? It's interesting you say that, Peyton. So I was, uh, I just conducted an interview the other day, actually, with an individual who, um, who described, you know, sort of his experience in starting as an infection control practitioner and actually going into a patient's chart and making a decision on whether the patient is clear to come off precautions. Because with that comes a level of risk that you could potentially expose other patients to. Because as soon as you take a patient off precautions, they're going in a, in a semi, right? They're going to go in a room with another patient. Um, staff no longer wear personal protective equipment to care for that patient. So there's and, – and visitors might, you know, as well, might not be wearing the PPE they need when you remove something like, you know, um, additional precautions for a patient. So he described it as sort of – handling live ammunition because, um, you know, you, the decisions you're making actually can make, have a big effect um, related to patient safety moving forward. If you make the wrong decision in that, um, you know, you can have adverse outcomes, not only for um, trans having transmission to another individual, um, but put staff at risk and those sorts of things. So I think people don't realize, I think sort of what we do day to day and then just the level of follow-up actually that can be required when we have IPAC lapses. I don't think, I don't know that that's, people are sort of aware of just sort of the level of detective work and investigation that we do. It's actually quite remarkable how we are, um, how, how dig, how, how, how deep we have to dig and investigate. The level of detective work that we do is actually an incredible skill you develop on the job. And I don't know that people kind of appreciate that level of um, investigative analysis that we do. Like it, it is, and, and timelining and sort of how we do that. That's a skill you develop on the job for sure. Yeah. Something we've discussed in the class as well is I think a lot of people entering the profession might have this mindset of, oh, it's all about disease control and out outbreak management. But really, the infection prevention is what comes first. And mm -hmm. so maybe that's also something that goes understated. Absolutely. So I think infection prevention, unfortunately, what we're finding as of late, and particularly as of COVID, like during COVID, is we, we've become very reactionary. So we're trying to get back to a level of baseline preparedness and like that preventative piece and making sure that we have all the admin controls in place, all those engineering controls, right? Like we're actually testing rooms to make sure they have the right um, air changes and that it's optimized and that we have, you know... Um, other things in place like triage is appropriate and like patient placement and like so getting back to the basics around that preventative piece um, is really key and sort of establishing and reviewing sort of our screening criteria for you know patients as they enter the facilities. 
There is definitely a lot of work involved in being an infection control practitioner or professional as well. So what kinds of projects in general would an infection control practitioner or professional take on? Oh, there's a variety of projects. So ultimately, infection control teams, this is where I come in as a leader, right? So doing like a gap analysis, doing a risk analysis of a program of like, what are the gaps? Where are we? Like, what's the pulse across the organization? And coming up with projects, that preventative piece that we were just talking about, right? So I think um, that's where I come in as a leader to help guide some of that. Now, the infection control team themselves and like the practitioners, they take on projects. That's a big component of an infection control practitioner's job is actually doing project work. Um and sort of that's really guided, as I said, by the gaps and things that are identified in the day-to-day work that need to be filled. So um, a good example right now is actually one of our team members um, is working on standardizing all the disinfectants across the hospital. Because over um, throughout the pandemic, we couldn't get our hands on disinfectants. So, you know, multiple types of disinfectants were sort of injected into the system and units and areas are using whatever they want. It's a bit of the Wild West. So one of the projects one of our team members is working on is really optimizing what disinfectants are you using with what patients when and and why, right? So that's a big organizational size um, project that's that's happening at the moment. Um, we have team members that work on optimizing sink design. We have team members that work on sink swabbing strategies. The other projects that we have, um, we inform and sit on a lot of different sort of initiatives around organizations. One of them in particular is actually informing what the water safety plan would look like um, for an institution. And that could go for long-term care, acute care, regardless of sort of the sector you're covering. There's, If you have patients and you're caring for patients, you need to have a water safety plan in place. So the IPAC team actually informs and helps um develop sort of what that water safety plan would look like and how testing potentially is required how you manage things like when there's a water main break outside the hospital how do you deal with that what is the follow-up what's ipac's role what's physical plant operations role things like that so i mean there's a variety of projects the list goes on um but really those those projects are informed on, on sort of what you're seeing day to day what best practices are and really what the gaps are and the risks to the organization Because of your career background, we've discussed a lot about IPAC and acute care settings. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on where IPAC can be prominent in other settings, other professions. It's funny you say that, Peyton. So I've like I've worked, obviously, I'm quite biased in the sense that I've a lot of my career has been spent in acute care. Um, and in long-term care. So um, although, I mean, IPAC is very prominent provincially, like within the government as well. Locally, you'll see it in public health agencies or units um, across Ontario and, you know, across um, across Canada. You'll have infection control specialists on public health teams. Um, government, there are, as I said, there's organizations. There's a number of infection control specialists that work at that level actually writing, pol- writing um, guidance for the province so that hospitals can actually put into place um, standardized infection control um, programs um, and initiatives, right? So um, we're seeing infection control actually push into workplaces, like completely unrelated to healthcare. Just recently, I saw a job posting for um, uh, the Treasury Board was hiring someone in infection control, like to inform how they sort of manage office spaces and the follow up. And like we've always traditionally seen occupational health and safety in those settings. And lo and behold, now we're starting to see infection control. Another sort of field as well is um, we're starting to see our industry partners hire IPAC specialists because they're seeing it's a way to tap into the healthcare setting, right? So we're seeing, I have some friends that have kind of moved over to the vendor side of things 
and they're now working for um, disinfecting companies. They're working for um, equipment companies, and they have IPAC special specializations, right? And that, and there's a need for that because when you're coming into a hospital and you want to introduce a product. You better be able to talk the game. And in some ways, um, infection control is your way in the door. So you need to be able to go head to head with the infection control team. So um, we're seeing definitely push more into uh, private industry for sure. It certainly feels like IPAC is growing in so many different ways, whether it's within acute settings or long-term settings, but also beyond that. So thank you for sharing about Mm -hmm. that. And I'm curious more about your own role in leadership as well. So what are some of your favorite parts about your role in leadership that you didn't really quite experience in or as an ICP at first? That's a great question, Tiffany. So I had I had a wonderful mentor, actually. It was one of my first bosses when I was in infection control. And he had a really business mind. He had business, very business focused. And I always thought, okay, well... It very organized, detail-oriented, but business-minded. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. Um, I learned a lot from him around, like, sort of techniques and, like, how to manage teams, how to get projects completed, how to sort of have a different lens and, like, how a program sort of fits within an organization. Some of my favorite parts really involve more of a strategy perspective, like how do we strategically move the program forward so it meets the needs of an organization, So how do we position ourselves based on the strengths of the team? What weaknesses do we have? Opportunities and threats. So that whole like SWOT sort of analysis and like understanding how to, how to, how to, how to, you know, positively push a team um, to sort of fulfill the needs of the organization. And, and, and how do we put things like best practices in place and ensuring that we can achieve the best possible outcomes for our patients. Um, So the part that I really love is actually working with a team that's my favorite part of my job I love I get a high like a dopamine rush from like actually working with team members like being productive I love working on productive teams and sort of being like a being a key member of the team and uh and really sort of trying to apply strategy to that and sort of how do how do we work and what does that look like so that's my favorite part do you have a story regarding that that you would like to share I just I have this memory from the pandemic. I'll never forget actually. Um, we were in a pinch trying to create posters for all of our frontline staff on like how to wear appropriate COVID PPE. And sort of, I just remember with the Kingston team actually just all of us poured into this hallway in right outside of our offices and just we all laid out posters and it was just so in the minute and it was so quick and I, I think we had to get these out like ASAP. I just remember being there was just such urgency around it. And, and, you know, everyone just coming together and huddling in the hallway and just having like really constructive sort of like, per, like, you know, good conversation about like what direction we're going, what are we doing um, and making decisions in the fly and in the moment and just flying by the seat of our pants and just working as a team and just there's, you know, getting stuff done. Like it was just, it's, it's actually what I'll never forget through the pandemic is just how I always, you know, I reflect on like how much red tape there has been over the years in large organizations. And I think when, when crisis hits, that red tape goes away. So I think it was really incredible to see um, just how like a high functioning team can get things done, crank things out. And that red tape, like you if, if there's a will, there's a way people can get stuff done. If it's better for the patients, if it's safer for the staff, you really can crank stuff out. So it's kind of a, one of the stories I can think of, but yeah. That sounds like a really fun job. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we're ready for some fun questions. We're starting to reach our time. 
Our podcast aims to be community-oriented, and part of this involves encouraging our listeners to explore Kingston and engage with the community. So regarding this, what is your favorite place downtown Kingston or near campus? So Kingston is my hometown. I was raised here. And then I did come back like during the pandemic while I worked at Kingston Health Sciences. And I don't know if anybody even knows this, but I used to sneak away during the pandemic and go down to White Mountain and get a raspberry um, uh, ice cream. (laughs) But anyway, that's my favorite. My favorite spot is White Mountain right down there. And then you can kind of walk around. And anyway, I, I love White Mountain. As we're recording this today, it's it's like a blizzard outside, so I'm not sure I'm in the mood for ice cream, but. Hi, post-edit Payton here. Unfortunately, due to some audio issues, we lost the last minutes of our discussion for this episode. I would like to step in on behalf of Tiffany and myself to express our deepest thanks to Heather Candon for taking the time to speak with us and sharing her valuable insight to the world of infection prevention and control. If you would like to learn more about the Queen's MPH specialization, I encourage you to visit the Queen's Department of Public Health Sciences website. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much for your continued listenership. Thank you for listening to an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry podcast produced with the generous support of Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 101.9 FM CFRC is broadcast from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee peoples. For any questions, comments, feedback, or even just dropping a friendly hello, you can reach out to appleaday.phip at gmail.com. Tune in next time at 101.9 FM CFRC.